morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please will you open with me to the book of James, James chapter 1. Uh, today we will finish James chapter 1, and you have my promise. Uh, I think this is the eighth week we've been in James. You have my word that every chapter hereafter will go quicker than James 1 went. We're going to be looking in particular at verses 26 and 27, but we're going to read together from verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks... He is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Our Father, you truly are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. Jesus, you are the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world to save and rescue us. And we come before you this morning eager for your word, desperate before you, eager that our religion would not be found to be worthless but pleasing, holy in your sight. So help us open our hearts to receive, we pray. Amen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ's words to his disciples that we saw last week, so simple and so profound, they find their root in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9 says this to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God saying to Israel, your love is made known in your obedience to my word. And he speaks of our relationship to the word, the relationship that God's people are called to have. And it's a relationship where the word of God saturates our lives. When he says to them, bind them on your hands. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on doorposts, the doorposts of your houses and gates. Those words are meant to be taken figuratively. How the word was to shape them as a people, their hearts, their minds, how it would work itself out and what they did with their hands, how it saturates the home. But in Israel's religious practice, there came a time as well where they did take those words literally. 
So the Jews would literally nail a little scroll to the doorposts of their houses, the, the mezuzah. Jewish rabbis would tie tefillin to their left arms and to their forehead when teaching the word. Little boxes with God's law written on scrolls inside. Jesus speaks of this practice when he condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23 verse 5, he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their tassels long. Now, it's not the practice he condemns per se, but for those Pharisees, that external form was disconnected from the reality of their hearts. If you walk into my parents' house, As you walk into the door, you'll see a little mezuzah nailed to the the doorpost there. My dad nailed it there. And if you walk inside, you'll see the first thing that greets you is a a clay tablet on the wall, graven Hebrew words that my dad inscribed. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The fruit of my dad's amateur interest in pottery. And seeing both of those might pique your interest. They could be nothing more than Meaningless symbols, nothing more than relics that enable one to not have to give a true internal reflection what's going on in the heart. But for my dad, they were something else. Declarations of a heart commitment that the word of God would shape his life and his home and his family. So to us, they are a testimony of his legacy. Now in this section, James is speaking about the life that is truly transformed by the word of God. It's the word of truth, he says in verse 18, that brings new life in the hands of a sovereign God. It's the implanted word we saw in verse 21 that we are to receive with meekness before our Father. In verses 22 to 25, he spoke of the the need for obedience to the word that we should be doers and not hearers only. And so we saw this last week in two points, the importance of obedience and the blessing that comes from obedience. And I'd originally intended verses 26 and 27 to be a third heading, the evidence of obedience, but decided that these words need a sermon on their own. And so we return today. James gives us practical illustrations. This is what doing the word looks like. Three applications, forefront in his mind. But before we get to those specifics, we need to discuss a concept that James brings up here that's important in relation to our doing the word. James makes it clear that there is a kind of doing that reflects the true state of our hearts. Like my dad's choice in home decor. And there is a kind of doing like we see in the Pharisees where heart and action do not line up. James takes us there by introducing a new term to this discussion on obedience to God's word. It's the term we see in verse 26 and verse 27, the term religion. So our first heading today, let's consider true and false religion. True and false religion. Religion is certainly a loaded term, isn't it? There's vastly different connotations for different people and different contexts. That last phrase in verse 26, religion is worthless. That's the common assumption, a common assumption in today's world. Many say that they desire to be spiritual but not religious. They don't want any part in that organized, showy stuff. In response, Christians recently have tended to agree. Maybe you've heard the phrase, Christianity is not about religion, but relationship. 
Or as Bono puts it, religion is what is left when the spirit leaves the building. Now to be sure, James acknowledges the existence of a kind of worthless religion in this passage. Religion has a broad meaning. It refers in general just to outward forms, practices engaged in honor of a God, but in the general term, it doesn't necessitate heart commitment. So Christians who say that Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship, they're trying to untie Christianity from mere external forms. And this is understandable because that kind of religion exists even in the church. Confused, heartless religion. Religion in this sense is just what is sprinkled on the top of a self-sufficient life. A sprinkling of charity here. And church attendance there and all is right with my soul and the world regardless of how I think about Christ in the rest of the week. We are right to want to distance ourselves from that. But then James also speaks in verse 27 of religion that is pure and undefiled. And he shows you that it's man's heart and not religion itself that is the problem. Christianity is about religion. It's a religion, it's a relationship that is religious. So I, for one, personally would call for the putting to bed of that statement that Christianity is not about religion and only about relationship. It's about relationship evidenced in how we live our lives, what we do and what we say at home, at work, even at church. Alec Matia in his commentary therefore provides this definition. Religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which a heart relationship to God is expressed in our lives. We can agree that the outward modes of behavior that do not reflect heart love are worthless religion, but there is a sincere, heartfelt religion that is very important. God cares about forms. He cares about religious expression and experience that He deems acceptable and that flows from a heart of love. I think James would have us see this in one phrase in the middle of Verse 26, I believe it's the key phrase to understanding this passage. He speaks of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Religion is what we do before our Father's eyes, knowing that our Father is watching us. There's a biblical line that I've grown very fond of and grown to cherish since having kids. In Psalm chapter 17, in verse 8, David prays to the Lord. He says, keep me, keep me as the apple of your eye. I love to watch my children. I feel pangs of pride and joy in the things that they do, even the silly things that they do. Their faces get a unique response from my heart, a response that is reserved for no one else. And that response of love that I experience is just a little taste of the way that God loves his children. So this is the relationship that is foundational to all of our doing, foundational to our religion, that we are children adopted by a loving father. This is the motive of pure religion. My father's loving eyes are on me. We know it's only by grace that we find ourselves in this position Like mankind, I was lost as we sing in utter darkness till he came and rescued me. We know there is no one righteous, no, not one, no one good but him, no one who does not fall short of the glory of God. See, that's the the problem with false religion. It doesn't get that truth. It is presumptuous. All I need is a little bit of effort, 
the burden of a little bit of effort to make sure my heavenly tab is kept in the positive. Isaiah calls it taking pride in filthy rags. We know it is by grace that the rebel is found in his hopelessness and the spiritual orphan becomes a child. And the father loves us freely by the death and the life of the son. We have, we know a father because we have the son who substituted himself, died for us, took our deserved condemnation. See, that's the gospel. And when we get the gospel, we, we live a life of true religion as a happy child because we know our father's watching. We know we want to be like him. That is the framework we need to take into the specific examples that James is mentioning here. So number two, let's see the evidence of pure religion. The evidence of pure religion. The three examples that James gives here seem a little bit abrupt if you read them. Why, when he's speaking of religion, does he go to these three examples, speaking of bridling the tongue and caring for orphans and widows and keeping yourself unstained in the world? Well, these are all areas that James is going to elaborate on in the rest of the letter. He's going to come back to them. They seem to be matters of concern in his heart for the church. But if you consider what God has done for us, as he laid out in verse 18, remember the beginning of the section on the word, what he's done as a loving father, it makes sense. Our father's speech is loving. It says he brought us forth in verse 18 by the word of truth, his word of truth. His speech has been loving and so his children are to be marked by loving speech. This new birth that he brings about is not something we can achieve. It's of his own will, James said. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lifts up the needy so his children do likewise. Our Father had a purpose as well for this intervention. Verse 18, this new creation, we would be the first fruits of His creatures. He acts to redeem. He makes us holy unto Himself. And it's that purpose that we carry into the world. Being doers of the Word for James means here that our mouths, our hands, and our hearts all belong to our Father. So let's look at these examples. The first one, pure religion means my mouth is his, belongs to him. The story is told of a pastor who was doing some work on a church work day, hammer in hand, he was going about his business and he noticed there was one member who wasn't doing any work, who was just following the pastor around. He carried on for a while but finally stopped and asked him, why are you following me around? And the man answered, I'm just listening to hear what you say when you hit your thumb. This curious member figured that this would be the moment of truth regarding the pastor's character. And Jesus taught there's a direct link between the heart and the tongue. The tongue is a good indicator of who you really are. So Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so likewise, James provides a test in verse 26. How do you know if your religion is worth anything? Follow your tongue. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this, person, this person's religion is worthless. 
in chapter 3, James is going to come back to the matter of the tongue in greater detail. And you might want to in advance ask me when we're going to be covering that week so that you can stay away because James is going to hit very hard. He says there that it's easier to tame wild beasts than to tame the tongue. And he hints here at that analogy when he speaks of bridling the tongue. He likens our tongues to wild horses that need to be broken in and bridled. I've only ever ridden a horse, I think, once or twice. Obviously a tame horse. But even so, if you get past a walk, if you get to a trot or a canter or a gallop, you begin to realize, if this horse doesn't like me, I'm in trouble. They're big, dangerous animals. I have ridden a wild donkey before, and I ended up in the dust. But that's not a story for today. The, the analogy James is using is such a good one because of the danger of the tongue. People, uh, James is saying here that people can be religiously or proudly religious and yet their tongues be wild and out of control. You notice here the test that James gives is not the ability to speak, but the ability to rein the tongue in. You can be outwardly religious and know all the right lingo. You can speak of justification and propitiation. You can craft long, impressive prayers at the prayer meetings, but behind the scenes, your tongue can be a world of trouble. What happens in the privacy of your own home, where it's only your wife and your kids to witness? Or what if we followed you into the office to see how you speak to your employees? What do you say when you're with your friends who do not know the Lord? And what is your tongue like when it's just you and another church member? And interest turns to a third party not present. John Calvin notes that it is gossip or slander that the outwardly religious are most prone to, more than filthiness or swearing. He says this, when people shared their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable to contract this complaint or to have this problem. A man will steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. But it is a lust for vilification. This explains, says Calvin, the bloated pharisaical pride that feeds indulgently on a general diet of smear and censure. Oh, Christian, we need to be so weary. You should be so suspicious of your tongue. Daily, it should be your expectation, my expectation that the need for repentance because of my tongue is just around the corner. In the great story of Isaiah's call to ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, he is standing at the edge of the temple, the threshold of the temple. He looks in and he sees God in his majesty, in his purity, in his holiness. And what is it that's so amazing and telling about his realization in that moment? He says, woe is me for I'm a, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. It was conviction about his lips as evidence of the depths of his sinfulness that struck Isaiah. Those with no regard, no awareness, no ability to bridle the tongue, James says they are self-deceived, deceived about their religion. Jesus tells a, a parable that exposes this kind of self-deception, the self-deception of religion. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, 
both go into the temple to pray and their words reveal their hearts. The Pharisee goes in, he has a delusional view of his own state and his own heart and it shows in proud speech before God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector goes in knowing his place of humility before the Father. He's under no illusions as to the worthlessness of his own righteous deeds and the depth of his need. Standing far off, it says he would not even look. He would not even lift his eyes into heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His religion is pure before the Father and it it forms his speech. The only hope we have of bridling the tongue is this posture of repentance, of need, of gratitude to the Father. It was only after Isaiah was forgiven that we see his answer to the call. Who will go for me? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I won't speak for myself anymore. My mouth is yours. This is the attitude of the happy child. God, please help me guard my wayward tongue because I want my speech to reflect to the world your kindness, your truth, and your grace. The way you speak about me, how does God speak about his children? Zephaniah 3.17 says he rejoices over them with gladness. He quiets them with his love. He exalts over them with loud singing. The one so loved desires to be an instrument of loving speech in the lives of others. Having given the test of worthless religion, James now moves on to two positive examples of pure religion in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, James isn't giving an exhaustive list here. He's not saying this is all there is to your religion or all there is to your obedience. But he does make a point that if your religion goes no further than the ritual or even no further than your own words, if it doesn't reach out into the way that you live in the world and how you treat people in the world, then you've got a problem. This was Israel's problem throughout the divided kingdom. Very religious They came and they paid lip service at the altar of Yahweh. But the prophets always seemed to have these two indictments against them. The pollution of idolatry, a pollution of the heart, and rampant injustice, oppression of the poor. Proof of their distant hearts. If you love the Father, you desire purity in your life, and you love the least of these. This is James's point. So number two, pure religion means my hands are his. My hands are his. In Isaiah chapter one, it's one of those prophetic passages, one of those indictments that bears great resemblance to James here. Isaiah informs informs the people that God is tired, that he's weary. He's tired of bearing their worship. They're praying prayers, he says, with raised hands covered in blood. He says in verses 16 to 17, God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek 
justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Here we see God's heart is the Father's heart. Psalm 68 verse 5 says he is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. And so James picks up the same pairing we see in the Old Testament when he says, visit orphans and widows in their their affliction. As in the days of the prophets, so in James' day, these were the most vulnerable and needy in society. And James is simply making a point here. Does the love of the Father flow in your veins? Does the love of the Father flow in our veins? And he's specific. He could have said, religion that is pure and undefiled is to be kind to everyone. And that would be true, wouldn't it? But you could move on from that and say, yes, I am generally a, a kind person. No, James would not let you off with vague generalities. Yeah, he gets to specifics. But you would ask this question. Am I visibly and actually pouring my life out for those in need, for the orphan and the widow? The church, are we too busy? Are we too busy with our religion? Too busy with our lives that when met with need in the world, the need where we have the power to speak and to act and to help, we have no care or no time for people. I say this to my shame. I love this about Jesus. He always seems to be interruptible, doesn't he? Don't stop them, he says. Let the little children come to me. Or or you would travel to a little town in, in Samaria just to meet with a thirsty woman. We allow busy schedules or our own mounting demands or financial constraints to callous our hearts to those who are hurting. Visit them, James says. And I think we need to hear this, living in Hillcrest. We like to give to the needs of others. There is nothing wrong with that. I love about this church that we have a healthy benevolent fund and a healthy widow's fund. Those are important. I'm excited by the generosity I've seen again and again and again in the life of this church. But this verse calls for more. It calls for the giving of ourselves because our Father is self, a self-giving God. As our Father has been to us, so we are to be to others. As He has given of Himself to us, so we are to go into the world, wanting the world to see our Father in the way that we give our lives. There's a wonderful little story in Luke chapter 7 about the compassion of Christ. He's walking into this little town called Nain. And as he's walking in, people are walking out of the town. And on a stretcher, there's uh, the body of a young man, the only son of a widowed mother. And Jesus is moved by compassion towards this mother. He says to her, do not weep. And then he reaches out and touches the stretcher. I love, by the way, in the, the gospel of Luke, that emphasis on the reaching out and touching hand of Christ. And he tells the young man to arise. And he obeys. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. It's a touching story, but it's the result that Luke points out that I want to highlight. That the people rejoice, he says, and they glorify God and they say, God has visited his people. See, that's the result that pure religion craves. Not that my hands would be praised or my, my hands be rewarded. But that when the church is moved by the Father's heart of compassion... 
to meet the needs of the lowly that people might see the Father and they would say, God has shown up. God has visited us. Glory to God. That's the ambassador's attitude. My hands are his for his glory. My mouth is his. My hands are his. And finally, very briefly, pure religion means my heart is his. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, James has made it clear. Religion that is pleasing to God is not just outward ritual that is um, apart from love for the weak. It must involve that love. But now he makes it clear that when we go out into the world, it must be even more than that. The world would have no problem with us if our religion was just guarding the tongue or, or meeting the needs of those who are, who are in need. Liberal theology tries to make it just that, but Scripture doesn't give us that option. Scripture draws a line in the sand, and true religion sets the child of God at odds with the world. Alec Matia says, the world is, in fact, anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus over our lives. If we are to live for him in the world, there is a constant issue of commitment, loyalty to be faced. Are we his or are we not? And at the level of the heart, every single day comes with a challenge to that commitment. Will we desire him and keep ourselves unstained from the broken cisterns of the world? Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. To live in the world is ceaselessly to face the bombardment of alternate paths to peace and happiness. Step off the path laid out by God and find satisfaction here as the world's call. Your children, they face it at school. They face it in the home, through the TV. That little thing that you carry around with you, that little device, you face it, that bombardment every single day. Will we trust him and keep ourselves unstained from the restlessness of the world? If you don't compromise, the world says, you'll never live the life of success. You'll never find love with that kind of a purity standard. Does God really want you to be alone? Or what's a little water cooler gossip in the office so that you can stay in the good books of those around you? Will we believe him? And keep ourselves unstained from the value systems of the world. There are moral agendas in the world today that are making it difficult, increasingly more dangerous they are to disagree with. I was chatting, I think this week or the week before, with somebody about challenges that Christians face in the world. And I remember as a teenager hearing a lot of youth talks on being careful not to be a judgmental Christian. When you go into the world... Be careful that you're not a judgmental Christian, which is true. But our youth are not hearing the same message anymore because, to be honest, it's a little bit less relevant today. When the world looks at the church, that's not their primary thinking anymore that, oh, the church is so judgmental. It's because everybody in the world is judgmental today. Go onto social media or Twitter and you see it. If you disagree with the world's standards and values, you are canceled. You're written off. The world's message concerning the church is not that we are judgmental. It's shifted. It's changed. It's moved to that we are wrong. 
We are morally outrageous in what we believe. And so there's a pressure to compromise what Scripture says, even in the church, to make living in the world a little bit easier. And we are not trying to live in the world easier. As Paul says, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My mouth, my hands, my heart belong to the Father. They belong to Christ because he gave, up his, he gave us his mouth, his hands, his heart. He gave us his mouth. He came to the earth, the very word incarnate. He came and he preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far off. His mouth went silent before his accusers like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He would not avoid the fate for which he came. He died and he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And even now he gives us his mouth an intercession for his own. He gave us his hands. He came gentle and lowly with us in our darkness. A bruised reed he did not break and a faintly burning wick he did not snuff out. He reached out with hands of compassion and touched those in society that society would not touch. He healed and he restored and he allowed sinful man to lay hands on him to beat and to bruise and he did not retaliate. He allowed soldiers to drive nails through his hands. He lives forever with those scars that are a testimony that declare his majestic redeeming love. He gave us his heart. Though we rebelled, he loved, he chose, he sought us out, he saved. Forever, if you are a child of God, your name is graven on his heart, scripture says. So the life of doing is the life of love. It's the ambassador's response to the king. He is my king and I own him. When we speak, may our words reveal who our king is. May they honor our king less of me and more of him. When we leave, may our hands be instruments in the blessing of others. May we build up, build up the church. And when we go into the world, may our hearts be captive to him, not for sale, our affections not for hire. May Christ be magnified in religion through this church that is pure and undefiled. Let's pray. Father, you search our hearts and you know us. You know what is in our hearts. Pray that you would do that work, Lord. And that if any here have not experienced level of religion to the level of the heart and have not acted out of a love for you, I pray, Father, that you would change that today. I pray that you would save. I pray, Lord, that you would be with your church as we seek to be obedient to these three commands. Lord, help us guard our tongues. Do a work in your church where you would put gossip out of our mouths and slander far from us. Make us holy. Take us into the world 
where we know with all our hearts that we belong to you, that we do not belong to ourselves. And God, make us a loving church. Help us to be obedient, to love those who are in need. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.